Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Your Mark on the World show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. I'm a Forbes contributor covering social entrepreneurship and impact investing, and our guest today is Ellie Skeel. She is the founder and CEO of Himalayan Wild Fiber, and we're going to have a great discussion, so stick around. You don't want to miss this. The Your Mark on the World show is made possible by our sponsors, including Clean Energy Advisors. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Ellie, welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have you uh, and look forward to talking to you about Himalayan Wild Fibers. Thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be here. It's a wonderful opportunity for me to get the message out. So let's start, Ellie, by please tell us uh, what is Himalayan Wild Fiber? Himalayan Wild Fibers is a company that is commercializing a textile fiber that's extracted from a wild-growing plant, the form of stinging nettle, that grows in the forests of the Himalayas. Uh, it is wild harvested. We extract from that a fiber, we refine it, and then we sell it into existing developed supply chains. Our mission is to create income for these subsistence farmers who live up in the Himalayas and are, have struggled for centuries. Um, and as an added benefit, we get to introduce a fabulous new sustainable fiber, and there's also a tremendous positive environmental impact. Um, How did you discover this fiber? Oh, gosh. Um, if you're a tourist in Kathmandu and you go to the tourist district, you'll find things made like this scarf is the best thing I've ever seen made from the fiber. Um, mostly what you find are very, very rudimentary handicrafts that are very rough and difficult to rough. I happened upon some one in some volunteer work I was doing in marketing, a Nepali trade group that had developed a cotton Himalayan nettle blend and was doing some things with it. And a little light bulb went off in my brain and I thought, this fiber has a lot more potential than just being used for animal leads and, and tump lines for carrying stuff up and down the mountains and making really, really rough handicrafts. So over the course of quite a few years, we analyzed different methods in which we could optimize the value of the fiber, and that's how I discovered it. And we eventually came to the conclusion that the way to maximize the economic input on the villagers who live in the mountains, and we, we refer to that as economic justice, or, or yeah, economic justice, um, would be to just stay focused on the fiber so that we could command a really good price for it and then pay fairly for our raw material. So what does the fiber look like when you sell it? Is it a refined thread or is it still rough? Okay. This, is that okay? That I <laughs> Yes, please. Um, this, this fiber is from our base fiber. Uh, we, get, we get it to this stage in Kathmandu, and then some people buy it like this, but it's the longest fiber known to man, and there's no spinning equipment in the world that can spin it at its natural length, which can be um, 
more than your camera can show. So right now we send it, we cut it. Whether someone's buying this or this, we um, have to cut it. And then some of it goes to France and gets converted. It gets bleached and softened and converted to something called tops. I'm trying to get it into the camera there. And this is what we sell to Italian and French and German mills today. Okay. And how are they using that fiber? What are they making with it? Um, well, they're making, for example, uh, knit, for the most part right now, uh, our mill partners are focused on yarns for knitwear. So this is a one, let me see if I can get in the camera properly. This is a 100% Himalayan nettle um, knit sample. It is um, most garments after, after they're produced from this kind of a yarn would go through a lot more finishing to make it really soft and drapey, et cetera. So this is just early state. And this is a wool Himalayan metal blend. We've got um, a denim that's being developed. Uh, is that 100% this, uh, Himalayan, Himalayan metal? Himalayan yes. And we will post soon on our site or, and or through social media uh, a video to the company, the, the head of the company that's developing, developing this in France, uh, who is our greatest advocate. He can't stop talking about how much he loves it, and there's a video of him doing that. Now, some natural fibers uh, that, that we farm end up uh, covered in uh, pesticides, and some argue that they're toxic to wear. Uh, some would say the shirt I'm wearing might be, be toxic. Uh, what about the Himalayan nettle? How is that harvested, and are there the same kind of pesticide risks with, with the Himalayan nettle? No. Uh, emphatically, no. We can't substantiate this claim with hard science yet, but most people we talk to and uh, who understand will agree with us that it is the most sustainable fiber and the cleanest, purest fiber on the market. It's like linen in that it comes from the stalk of a plant, but it grows wild in forests at altitude. There are no inputs, there's no water requirement. It doesn't grow on land that could be used for farming. It is, I couldn't believe it when I started to research, when I was gonna go out for money, I better find out the downside to this because of course that's what we're gonna get asked. And I kept going, well, what about this? It's a rhizome. So if you cut it, it grows back stronger Um, and it, it has, if many people believe it has medicinal properties, both in the fiber, in the leaves, and in the seeds. We are only tapping into the fiber at the moment. So how does the uh, harvesting benefit the local community, the, the, in, the farmers who are harvesting it for you? This is the, this is the reason I founded the company. Um, I'll say something quite personal. I have two children whom I had adopted from Nepal, and they came to me from poverty, and they come from mountain families. And I felt that this was a gift that I needed if, I could, if there was a way that I wanted to, to repay. 
And when I discovered this fiber, I thought, this is the way I can repay it. So during the off-season, the, the people who collect it are, for the most part, subsistence farmers. And most Westerners, you know, people from developed nations, don't really understand what a subsistence farmer is. It's someone who subsists on the farming activity they do. A quarter of the time, they don't even grow enough to live, and they have to go to India or elsewhere to work. Maybe a quarter of the time, they grow enough to sell a little. Half the time, they just get by perfectly. So they have no cash with which to increase their wealth or buy school books for their children or medicines or anything. So during the off-season, when their farming activity is in a lull during the winter period, they go into these forests at altitude, and it's really hard work. They cut these, the stalks, and they peel the bark ribbon. I can show you some bark ribbon, but anyway, off of it, and then they let it dry, and they carry it down from the mountains. They carry sometimes three, four, five days to get to um, a trail where donkeys then can carry it to a roadhead. It's very inaccessible. We pay fairly for that raw material. Consequently, the fiber is quite expensive because with all the markup that goes into the, all the stages of the supply chain, um, you just can't help but have it be expensive. But we're, we're, tr we're working very hard to reduce our uh, production costs, but we will not press down on the price that we pay for the raw material. That's negotiated with what are called community forest users groups who've done a fantastic job in Nepal of reforestation of many areas that were wiped out. And um, we, a price is negotiated that means people will make between two and three dollars a day for the, they don't, they don't earn a salary. They don't, they, they sell us by the weight. So they're still self-employed. They have their dignity, their farm, they're, they're their own people. Um, but we pay them fairly for the raw material we buy from them. Long answer to a simple question. Yeah, no, it's a great answer, and it, clearly it is having a real impact on it. What are you seeing as you visit those folks in Nepal that are beginning to harvest for you? What kind of impact are you having on it? The money is most often, unfortunately, sadly, it's used for food. Um, in one part of the country, it's used to, we're, we're still not scaled up a lot, so our impact isn't huge yet. When we scale, it will be, by Nepal's standards, huge. Um, in one part of the country, they're actually using it to rebuild homes that were destroyed in the earthquake, the multiple earthquakes. They're also, for those who are lucky, they're able to increase their wealth by buying animals, uh, new kinds of seeds that they can grow, um, medicines, uh, school books, possibly send their children to Kathmandu to go to school, which is, has its own set of issues, but this is something that's important to them. So those are the sorts of things that they use the money for. Now, let's talk a little bit about the environmental impact. You said this is good for the environment. How is it good for the environment to go take these rhizomes out of the forest? Well, that's the key. We don't take the rhizome out. The, the, the rhizome, which grows horizontally underground, uh, is not 
if this was a cultivated crop, it would get all pulled out by some kind of cultivation equipment as it went through the forest or through the, through the crop field. But instead, the, set, the roots go down and the stalks go up and the rhizome is horizontal. The stalks are cut. And by cutting those stalks, the rhizome plant has to divert, divert less energy to sustaining a withering, dying last year's stalk and has more energy to build greater root structures, which helps with erosion and landslide control, which is a huge problem in Nepal, and also to send up new and more uh, shoots the following year. And the stalks produce really big green leafy, they're, they're big green, they, they produce big green leaves, which are great CO2 sinks. So again, none of this has been quantified. I don't know if it ever will be quantified, but forestry professionals in Nepal will agree with us that by cutting the old stalks, we're really most likely having a positive, not just a net neutral, but a positive impact on the environment. That's great. Now, who has invested so far in your business? We have 19 direct investors. We don't fit a profile that is often appealing to the um, impact asset investment funds. For example, a lot of them have their prospectus written, and instead of saying South Asia, they'll say India. Or, and then they can't give us any money. It's really, it's been like the biggest frustration of my life. Others, um, interestingly, do not have livelihoods or income generation as a segment that they fund. They'll send, they'll fund solar lighting, they'll fund human waste disposal turned into manure, you know, all different kinds of the education, but they don't fund the, the thing that everybody needs to buy that stuff. So this is the thing that was hitting my head against the wall early on until I discovered that there are individual high net worth investors who get it, that this simple, it's a very simple company. We're never going to be $500 million a year in revenue. We're going to be good sized, but, but then we're going to top out because this is a natural, wild growing natural resource. It's not ours to begin with as it belongs to the Himalayan people. So we want to ramp it up, get it at its full value and then at some point turn it over to them after we've all been compensated for our risk. Um, but our 19 investors come from early on, obviously, some family and friends and acquaintances. Uh, and then a lot of them came through Baldwin Brothers, Inc., which is a wonderful firm based out of Marion, Mass. Um, and they've, they've been instrumental in helping us. Fantastic. Now, your background started with working here in Utah, where I am, at Novell, a tech company. How on earth did you make a transition from that to Nepal? My background started in New York, selling mainframe upgrades from 360s to 370s for IBM. So what used to be called the data processing division, if you can believe it, um, and then I went to work on Wall Street for a couple of years. And then I said, I'm out of here, and I went sailing for three years. When I quit sailing, I started 
I'm, I am a serial entrepreneur. Not, not until I moved to Nepal did I become an impact entrepreneur. But I started a very early um, networking company back when I uh, was selling Banyan Vines and Novell Network. And Novell recruited me. We sold off the customer base to another company. And I ended up out in Utah working for Novell. Um, I then left and did eight years of consulting, helping mostly, mostly Bay Area companies, but some in Dallas, convert their technology to a product. And I based that work on a sort of a contrarian view of looking at who would be selling this, which was the channels. The ten- and so figure out a product that the channels would want to sell. So I, I developed a whole model that people wanted me to write about. And, but uh, one day I was driving down Lombard Street on the way home from a consulting gig in, in Silicon Valley. And I just adopted my daughter from Nepal. Oh, I'd adopted her about a year ago, the year before. And there was a, there was a billboard on the side of Lombard, and there was about a, the billboard depicted about a 27-year-old young man sitting at a desk with an old-fashioned computer screen, one of those box screens, and his fist up in the air. And it looked like he was going to pound the desk, and the caption was, I want my IPO. And I went home. And I called my sister and, my, and I said, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to go stay in Nepal for a while, get my head screwed on straight, and uh, see if I can't do something more meaningful with my life. And 18 years later, <clears throat> you're back. 20. 20 now. <laughs> by, the time, by the time I saw that billboard to now, it's 20 years. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. you are a remarkable woman, and a lot of people look up to you. Who do you look up to as a role model? Oh, gosh. I haven't thought about that in a long time. And because my life, I mean, I have role models in Nepal. Um, Olga Murray is, a, is an American. Do you know who Olga Murray is? Oh, sure, sure. Great woman She's, who advocated for ending slavery in, uh, in, in uh, Nepal. Yes, and that's just a tiny bit. She has created the most amazing organization. There are people like that in Nepal and in Asia who I have the highest regard for. Um, in America, I'm trying to think. <laughs> well, Olga, Olga is a great answer. A phenomenal response. She is a phenomenal. Olga's a friend of mine. I love her. And I think her story of, I'm 64. She started doing that when she was in her mid-60s. Yeah. After a career working for Supreme Court justices in California. This California Supreme Court. So that's my role model. Yeah, great role model. Thank you. show a couple of years ago. So why, you made quite a decision. You told us about the moment you saw IPO guy and, and made this switch, but you didn't really say why. Why did you feel compelled to shift gears in such a dramatic way? Well, it wasn't the first time I'd shifted gears. I mean, I went from New York to sailing. Uh, but, but I felt um, that I wasn't making a difference. And I guess uh, my father was very idealistic, and he started a couple of companies. He was ahead of his time, none of which were particularly successful, 
but he felt like he was really um, doing some good. And I've often said to people, you know, I don't mean to sound like, oh, I have to do something good. It's kind of a curse. I wish I could be, I wish I could be happy just having a regular job, but I'm not. I'm, I'm, I feel an emptiness. I'm being very personal. But um, so that was, is, does that better answer your question? Yeah, that's great. Now, Ellie, what is your superpower? Oh, <laughs> La- laughing at everything. <laughs> <laughs> you do have a great sense of humor. Um, my superpower, I think, is my our lead investor says I have I have the most stick to itiveness of anyone he's ever encountered, and he's invested in a lot of impact startups. And he says I have guts and I have gumption and I will not quit. Um, so that's not a superpower. Uh, that's, that's an excellent superpower. That's oh, a- good. Okay, thank you. <laughs> well. Ellie, we thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Before you go, tell us how people can learn more about Himalayan Wild Fiber and connect with you personally. We have a website. It's Himalayan Wild Fibers with an S on the end, although we should register the fiber and have it direct. Um, it's, there's not a lot of information on it right now. We're just scaling up to... Uh, have a, a big social media presence um, and a bigger marketing presence. So you can email me at Ellie at Himalayan Wild Fibers. We're in the middle of what we hope will be our last round of um, financing. And we'd love to hear from people who are interested in that, but we'd love to hear from people who have ideas and suggestions or who want to use the fiber in some way. I really want to just point out, brands are contacting us all the time, wanting to look at material such as what I showed before. And one of the reasons we have held back in, our, in getting more aggressive with marketing is because we don't have enough materials to show people. So our primary focus is on building up mill partners. Once we get the mills developing yarns, then we can begin have fabrics and knitwear and other things that brands can work with. So, so if you contact us now, we will not be able to send you a lot of samples, but it's coming. Great. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for being with us today. We wish you every success in growing your business and helping the people of Nepal. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and it was fun to talk about. Thank you. Thank you. Now, let's do some good. Clean Energy Advisors creates investment opportunities in the renewable energy sector that provide clients with predictable income, preservation of capital, and positive impact. Clean Energy Advisors is committed to providing clients with investment opportunities with both market rates of return and measurable impact. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devonthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO 
celebrity, entrepreneur, or other change maker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.